You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so <laughs> Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Remember, the term son of man is a title. It's an honorific. It's the technical term. It's a title, and it's a title of power. Everybody say power. It's a tower of my, pa- title of power and might and divinity. So it's, I mean, it's, it's, not a gentle ta- it's not a gentle title. When you read this in Daniel and in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's a title of power. Um, you don't want the Son of Man to visit you in some ways is how this, the Scriptures kind of set it up. Um, so, so Jesus is making a real, real clear point when he says in 25 verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say, everybody say the king. The king will say, who's the son of man, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom. Everybody say the kingdom. Inherit the kingdom. It's been promised, inherit it now. Prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them and say, I assure you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, everybody say together, you did to me. Then he'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me sick. And in prison, and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And then he'll answer them, I assure you, let's read this together, whatever you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me either. And they will go away into eternal punishment for the righteous and to eternal life, the word of the Lord couple of things I will say every week. First off, if this is your first time coming in a while and you missed the last two weeks, I've talked about this text with us two weeks in a row, like more specifically. We'll circle back to it later. Today we've got a particular conversation we want to have about the battles we're in, and then we're going to start looking at stories of Jesus in the Scripture and how Jesus enters in to Matthew 25, even himself, and how we can follow Jesus into that place, how we are sometimes the least of these while at the same time, how we are sometimes those who have to tend to the least of these. We play both roles. One of the things that Jesus says in the scripture that I think is important is he says, whatever you've done to the least of these, and the least of these is important because Jesus is saying the least or the worst off of all the people. So not just the kind of hungry that is manageable, but the, but the really like the worst off of the kind of hungry. Not just those in prison who didn't do, you know, terribly bad things, however that frames out in our heads. But, but those who, who are like some of the hardest in prison. Um, Jesus is saying, whatever you did, the least of these, some of the worst off, some of the most complicated, some of the most difficult, whatever you've done to them and for them, you've actually done to me. So I want to say that this isn't about choosing just the easy and the, 
the, the, the convenient and the good investment. This is, this is a complicated thing Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying, I'm with them. To do for them is to do for me. And we talked a lot about that. What I want to talk about today is how years before this text, years before this occasion on Matthew, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus begins his ministry in this hometown synagogue. Luke in chapter 4 tells us that he takes the Hebrew book, the scroll Isaiah, and he turns to Isaiah 61, or he unrolls it to Isaiah 61, and Jesus is about to announce God's vision for the world by reading this text. He chooses this text because this text is about him. It's about God's vision for the world, but it's about his role in bringing God's vision for the world into present-day, now reality in Jesus' day. And so he opens it up and he reads, and Luke chapter 4 has it. If you have a version app, all your notes will be there if you want it. But this is Luke 4, and around 16 and 19. And Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he finally looks and he closes it up and he says probably the most important thing of all because without Jesus saying this, what Jesus just read misses its mark. Jesus says, and today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Like it's happening right now. Where the poor are and will receive good news where captives can be set free, where the oppressed can be liberated, where the blind can see again. And the response is mixed when you look at the story. At first, everybody's amazed, and, but then Jesus doesn't just let people sit in their amazement. He goes a little farther with a little commentary. Jesus, see, Jesus isn't content to deal with the abstract. Jesus could have said, hey, the poor, they're going to get good news, and people are like, yep, the poor need some good news, bro. Jesus would be like, the captives need to be set free. And they'd be like, yeah, I could see like the captives need to be set free. We're all about, we're all about set free captives. Um, and the oppressed could be liberated. Like, we're all against injustice. That, that's right. Jesus could have just stopped there and said, and that's happening. And then people would be like, that's great. But Jesus doesn't deal with the abstract. He goes to the concrete. Jesus isn't cool with people settling in kind of the 30,000-foot view of like abstract categories like poor and oppressed and captive. He gets specific. And so what Jesus does is he uses two very famous stories from Israel's history to prove a point. He's illustrating what he's about to say by using these stories. And of all the stories he chooses, he chooses a time when the prophet Elijah was sent to a widow in a place called Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon, which is on the outskirts of a seaport city, which is on the outskirts of Israel and Jerusalem's centers of power. And of all the widows God could have sent a prophet to, of all the inside widows, all the powerful widows, all the well-known widows and the fluent widows, God sends a prophet to a widow whose son and her are starving and gives her something to eat. Now, that's not so controversial because at least she's, you know, part of the community. Outskirts, but part of the community. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, oh, and also Elisha. There's Elijah and Elisha. He sends Elisha to a general of the Syrian army, which is Israel's enemy army, to visit him 
and heal his sickness. And that's what Jesus uses to illustrate what he just said. Like contrary to your popular belief, he says in a way, hearers, God's not always going to be on the side of those you think God should be on the side on. And God's going to do for those for whom you might least expect or even least desire. And so as a result of this text, what you read, and it is interesting, the amazed turn enraged, Luke tells us, and they want to throw Jesus off a cliff. But Luke tells us that Jesus walks on through. And then we get to our text this morning. Right there, immediately following this extraordinary sermon that has once turned a bunch of fans into enemies, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, verse 31, that Jesus went down to Capernaum, it's up here for you, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. Everybody say authority. In the synagogues, there was a man who with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him. Everybody say rebuked. <laughs> and said, be silent and come out of him. Throwing him down before him, before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Verse 36, amazement came over them all, and they were saying to one another, what is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with, say it with me, authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. Scene two. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now, Simon is Peter, so it's Simon Peter. So when you hear the word Simon, think Peter, the apostle. After he went, left the synagogue, he entered Simon Peter's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and, say it with me, rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. Scene three. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. As he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God, but he, say it with me, rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. When it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. They wanted to keep him for themselves. Don't blame them. But he said to them, it's necessary for me to proclaim the good news about, say it with me, the kingdom of God to the other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So stay with me because today I'm going to sound like a raging Pentecostal charismatic preacher. Actually, I'm not going to sound like a raging one because I don't even know how to be that way. I'm like a charismatic in a seatbelt. I want to come out, but I've been raised in too fundamentalist a tradition to be able to fully come on out. But there is something about this text we need to see in order to receive it. <clears throat> so if you came to church today for the first time in a long time and you're like, all they believe is all these crazy things they talk about the devil. It's so weird <clears throat> because they were going to talk about the devil. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> this is not new. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, that was loud. This is not new for WCC. If you've been here for a long time, this is not a new conversation, but we hadn't had this conversation in a while. But I want to say a couple of things first off. The word devil literally translates adversary. Everybody say adversary. Now, a lot of times what we do is we personify the devil. In other words, we make the devil a person. 
And so we have images and mythology about the devil being a person, like red with, with, with horns and a, and a pitchfork and a pointy tail, rather, rather innocent, colorful fig- figure. Um, or like in horror films, we have these dragon versions and all these different things. <clears throat> and that's fine if you want to personify the devil that way. The scriptures are really kind of open-ended, but that's why I wanted to say it. The scriptures are open-ended. The devil is less, the scriptures is less with you, is less concerned with you and I thinking about the devil as a person and more concerned with you and I thinking as the devil as an adversarial oppressive force at work in the world. Are you with me? So if you don't believe me, give me that room for at least 30 minutes or so and then see where you land and go from there because the one thing I can't have you forget is that Jesus walks around in all three of these scenes rebuking the oppressive forces that are at work in humanity seeking to harm human beings. Are you with me? So notice even in Peter's mother-in-law where she has a fever that Luke even uses the word that Jesus rebuked the fever. I think Peter is used, I think Luke is using the word rebuke because he wants us to understand something's happening in all three of these scenes that we all too easily miss. There's a conflict happening in this. This isn't just about Peter's mama being sick. This isn't just about our mother-in-law being sick. This isn't just about people having, having demonic presences in and of itself. It's not, there, there's more that Luke is trying to uncover. And maybe Luke is trying to connect these stories to what Jesus said he's going to do when he said he's going to preach good news to the poor and set free the oppressed and release the captives. What I think Luke is doing with the word rebuke is he's showing us that there's a conflict in this world, there's a battle in this world, there's a battle over every human life, human heart, human body, human mind, and that battle is either driven by or includes the oppressive forces that are at work in this world by the reign of sin and death at work in the world. And when Jesus walks around and in this story rebukes these things, Luke is trying to show that Jesus is reclaiming. Everybody say reclaim. Jesus is reclaiming what has been broken and lost by the reign of sin and death. So don't get caught up in the demonic things and in the casting out of demon things. I mean, you can, and and there's a lot there. But I think ultimately the point of this text, just in my opinion, would y'all just hear me say, did I say my opinion? Okay, my opinion, my reading of Scripture is that this is that demonstrating Jesus' authority and power over the oppressive things and demonstrating God's desire to reclaim the things that have been broken in this world and to offer liberation. And anything that is an enemy of love and anything that is an enemy of liberation is an enemy of the vision of God and will create the oppressive forces that will harm and hurt lives. Are you with me? Trauma is an oppressive force in the world that can break family systems, that can break our hearts, that can break our minds. I am not saying that we're demonically possessed with trauma. Churches abuse that nonsense and go crazy with that. What I am saying is that these sometimes unseeable but completely felt and manifested oppressive realities in our lives are the things that Jesus has the authority to liberate us from. We have to choose which oppressive spirits we're going to listen to. Now, with that said, there is a battle, and we're all in it. And even though liberation 
and victory is ours. That's what Christians believe. Christians believe when Jesus was risen, Jesus overcame the reign of sin and death, broke the reign of sin and death, offered victory to the world, now is reigning Lord. The kingdom of God is broken in, and we can live in a victory that makes it even death. We're death-proof. When I die, and 10 out of 10 people die, that's what all the doctors agree is that 10 out of 10 people die. And, that, and when that happens, I, like, like for Christians, we're just going to change neighborhoods. We're, we're moving from one life to the next. And the loss and the hurt and the pain and all that is here for all of us, and that can press down on us and break us in profound ways which is why the Bible says that death is the final enemy of Jesus to be put in abolish, to be abolished when Jesus returns. Are you with me? So the reality of the reign of sin and death is at work in the world. And the reality of the reign of sin and death, this sin sickness that pervades all of our souls, that actually ends up pervading all of our society, and hear me out, the reason I say society is because sin sick people which is all of us, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, sin-sick people produce sin-sick systems in their own image that result in sin-sick outcomes because of sin-sick desires. So social, political, and cultural realities are stained and broken by the reality of the reign of sin and death. Institutional isms exist because the reign of sin and death exists. Don't let Christians or anybody try to tell you otherwise. And Jesus comes to liberate us from all of that. But it doesn't mean it's not going to get all over us. It doesn't mean we're not going to feel it. It doesn't mean we're not going to be covered up in it. We're all in a battle. Every one of us are in a battle. And even though the Christian tradition says that liberation and victory is ours, come on now, sometimes it feels like we're losing. That's just a reality. Sometimes life seems to fall apart. Plans fail. Dreams crash. Hope feels lost. Our best efforts fall short. The situation seems almost impossible. And we know in our heads that the war is already won, that liberation will happen, but it feels like battles are all too often lost and liberation isn't happening right now. And the struggle is real. And so the battle for our lives, our bodies, our minds, our hearts rages on. And one of the things I wanted to do is remind us that one of the primary aims of the battles that we're in, all the battles, one of the primary aims of the battles that we're in when we read the scriptures and we interpret the world through the lens of the kingdom of God, okay, that's the key. If you're here and you don't interpret the world through the lens of the vision of God, then this is going to sound weird. But for those who interpret the world through the lens of the vision of God, one of the key things to remember is one of the primary hopes, outcomes of these battles is to convince us to stop believing, to stop loving, to stop living, to stop welcoming, to stop forgiving, and to stop trusting Jesus as the liberating Lord of love. And the early church was told to keep their eyes on this. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, says this, verse 8, be thoughtful. Everybody say thoughtful. So we have to be thoughtful. So Christian, like, brother, are you thoughtful about the world in which we live? Like, are you thoughtfully engaging the world in light of the vision in God, vision of God for the world? Or are you looking at it through just your American lens or just your whatever lens? You see the world. Be thoughtful. Be alert. Your adversary. Everybody say adversary. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion 
looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him and be firm in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, what's happening, I think, is the Christians here are suffering, and in their suffering, they're starting to lose the battle. In their hearts, in their souls, in their minds, maybe even in their community of faith, it looks like the battle is losing. The emperor's crazy death is happening, and they're starting to lose the battle, and they're starting to feel like they're losing the battle. And I feel like what Peter is saying is, hey, the battle's real, the suffering is hard, the sorrow is real, the devil, uh, like the adversary is coming after you though. Stand strong together, resist him. Now, let me pause and sidestep because I didn't say this in the first gathering, it needs to be said here. A lot of times when we have conversations like we're having today, this creates a kind of Christian paranoia. You with me? You know what I mean when I say Christian paranoia? Like, like the devil's out to get me? Right, like my toaster broke, the devil broke my toaster. Like I woke up, had a flat tire. Oh, the devil, the devil deflated my tires. Like that kind of like paranoia. But now let me say this. Isn't it true that when you have one really hard thing happen, it seems like there's a whole lot of other hard things that follow? Raise your hand if that's ever happened. Right? So where's that coming from? And that's what I'm saying. Theologically, that's the reign of sin and death breaking into your life and the world. That's the oppressive activity of what's going on in the heavenly places working at us so what i'm saying y'all is there's a tension i think that scripture is calling us to hold we're not supposed to be paranoid christians running around seeing the devil in the toaster when it breaks that's ridiculous ish depends on what you're trying to cook with the toaster sometimes the devil's after it i tried to cook a meal this week and the devil was definitely after my meal because it tasted terrible but paul doesn't paul kind of picks up where peter leaves off with kind of explaining the spiritual realities and the actual physical, emotional, social realities that are taking place in our world. Where Peter makes it sound like there's this devil walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, which is literally what he says. Peter, uh, Paul kind of unpacks it with a little bit bigger view. And maybe Paul does this in Ephesians 6 because Paul knows that he's been an instrument of the devil himself. See, before Paul became a church planner and a Christian, he was a religious, he was a terrorist to Christians. In the name of his religious and political ideology, everybody say ideology, he somehow gained permission and support by the leaders of that ideology to kill other people in the name of his ideology. Don't tell me ideology isn't sin sick. And so Paul puts it this way. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally be strengthened by the Lord and by His immeasurable strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. Say tactics. For our battle is not flesh and against blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. Here's what I think Paul is saying. First thing he's saying, I think, is the battle's not flesh and blood. Meaning the battle's not just going to be me against Robin. That's an oversimplification of the battle. It's not going to be Larry versus me. It's not going to be ex-spouse against ex-spouse. It's not going to be parent versus child. It's not going to be you versus them. That's not where the real battle is. We may be a part of the battle, and when we come into the battle, we become instruments of the battle, and every one of us are getting played. The battle's not flesh and blood. It looks like it, it feels like it, it seems like it, because we become complicit to the battles and the oppressive actions in this world. But the battle's not me against you or you against them. That's not where the battle is. 
We just become instruments of a bigger battle. The battle is bigger than even that. It's inside of us, but it's also big and massive outside of us. It's against what Paul says, the rulers against the authorities. Now that's of this age. So part of the battle is in the systems of this world, the ideologies of this world, the death-dealing beliefs and systems and values at work in this world, the death-dealing institutions that are built by the death-dealing values and ideas that are constructed by the death-dealing sin-sick human hearts that build them. Who, by the way, were formed by the same thing earlier on and formed and formed and formed and formed while at work are the world powers of this darkness, the world powers, that's present-day powers of this darkness, uh, and, and, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. You with me? So when people talk about, is this spiritual warfare, the problem with the language of just calling it spiritual warfare is it becomes abstract warfare. It's real warfare. There's a battle for hearts, for souls, for minds, for bodies, for societies, for peoples. It's not just spiritual. It's holistic. And it's at work in the world. We see it in the injustices of the world. Don't we? We see it in the poverty and the hunger and the homelessness. We see it in the racism. We see it in the ethnic superiority. We see it in the exclusion of another human being. Another human being made in the image of God. We see it in the refugees who have to try and find a different home just so they can raise their kids up in a place where bullets and bombs aren't falling from the sky. We see it. That's, the, that's, 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 that's this. That's the battle. But we also feel it. We feel it in the hopelessness. We feel it in the shame we carry. We feel it in the guilt that turns into shame. We feel it in the insecurities that we hold. We feel it in the self-deprecation that we're not good enough. We feel it in the addictions. We feel it in the struggles. We feel it in the doubts. We feel it in other ways. So we feel the spiritual warfare from deep down within our gut, and we feel the spiritual warfare and the physical warfare and the emotional warfare and the social warfare that's going on with the reign of sin and death at work in the world all outside of us and inside of us all over again. And what's Jesus doing? In Luke, he's entering into it. He's entering into it, and he's rebuking it. Everybody say rebuke it. He's rebuking it. He's rebuking it. He's calling it what it is. You want to know why the church can't repent? Because we can't call it what it is. That's why we call it what it is here. If you're going to rebuke something, you've got to call it what it is. So the first thing about rebuking, which is what the whole thing's about, is first off, you've got to call it what it is. And if you wake up every day and say, I am God's beloved, and something inside you says you aren't worth anything, then you got to call that what it is. got to call it a lie of the devil. You're going to feel all kinds of Pentecostal and charismatic when you do it, and you're going to sound weird, and you don't want to say it in front of people, but you need to go on and say it. Go on, look yourself in the mirror and say it. Catherine Crow, who was a spiritual mama to me that I spent every week with before she passed and went with the Lord, taught me something. And she said, every morning I wake up, I look in the mirror and I look at my face and say, you are a child of God. She said, Fred, you got to preach the gospel to yourself. So maybe one of the things we got to do in the start of rebuking the warfare that encapsulates our lives is we got to preach the gospel to ourselves. To rebuke it, we got to name it. And we got to call it what it is. 
So when I feel that self-deprecation and I feel that shame and then I hear about a God who releases me from that shame, you got to call it what it is. And you got to say, I, I thank God for feelings. Feelings, I think, are of the Lord. Feelings are beautiful. Feelings are good. Emotions are good. Emotions are beautiful. But there are sometimes we need to be remember that God's faithfulness is bigger than our feelings. And we have to look ourselves in the mirror and remind ourselves of who we are because of whose we are. And that isn't up for negotiation because there's a bloodstained cross and an empty tomb that says it's so. And God ain't going to play games with your life because God gave up his life to save your life. He's not going to play games with it. And so you have to be willing to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to be willing to look yourself in the eyes. Look yourself in the eyes and say, I am loved and I am known just as I am, not as I should be. And the Spirit of God in me longs to make me into who I can be. And even though I feel this battle, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil because you are with me. I'm loving me some of this charismatic second gathering now. Woo! Because it's true. Because it's true. I feel like I need to beat my Bible now just to make it all come home. Like throw something. Because there's this other reality too. Because we can't just remember. We can't just forget that the battle's not just internal. The battle is external too. The systems of injustice in this world need to be rebuked. They need to be called what they are too. Because sometimes those are the systems that work inside of us. Sometimes those are the systems that have formed us. Systems that devalue bodies. Systems that, under, systems that take power away from bodies. Systems that, that hurt and harm and bring injustices to this world. Those systems have to be rebuked too. Because they do things inside of all of us. And the problem is when we allow the battle to become flesh and blood and we think now it's me against you. And that's when we're getting played. Even if I'm upholding the systems, I'm still made in the image of God, known by God, loved by God. I just need to be rebuked in the hopes that I come to know the God who knows me best and loves me most and calls me to a better place. In our tradition, Williamsburg Christian Church tradition, we often forget that the word Satan in the Bible literally translates accuser. And in the scripture, Satan is called the accuser of the church. And so the things that accuse us inside of ourselves that go against the things of God are always going to be of the accuser. That's the enemy. But anything that is pressing against the life of another person, even outside of my body, outside of my reach even, systems of injustice, hunger, poverty, hopelessness, homelessness, all this, those are of the devil too. The church has to call them what they are because we will find ourselves in the battle no matter what. There are three things we can know that we know that we know. Number one, the reign of sin and death will remain until Jesus comes again. So the reign of sin and death and all the systems that it's created and all the things that it does even inside of me will remain and continue to have its way. We have to rebuke those things. Name them what they are. Remember who you are because of whose you are. And remember that you do have the victory. You do have the liberation. You just have to learn to live liberated. You may be liberated in a soul, but you may not be liberated in your mind. 
you have to be liberated in your consciousness and in your mind too. You know that the old statement is, Jesus can save our souls, but he does not save us from our minds. Our minds have to be redeemed just as much as our souls do, which is why the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing what? Of your mind. The second thing we need to remember is that the love of Jesus is not fickle, frail, or fragile. The love of God in Jesus Christ is faithful, and he's made promises, and he's going to keep them. So after you rebuke that thing, you've got to open up the scriptures and remember the promises of God. If you don't open up your scriptures and remember the promises of God, you will be beat down in the battle. But if in your in the battle you open up the scriptures and remember the promises of God, you will find a little more courage for the battle. And when you can't find the courage, then you call a brother and sister in Christ and you find the courage through them. Because what's the whole aim of the battle? Is to try to somehow convince you that it isn't worth believing. It isn't worth loving. It isn't worth living. It isn't worth welcoming. It isn't worth forgiving. And it isn't worth trusting Jesus as liberating Lord of love. That's what's happening. The enemy of love and liberation is trying to convince us that it's not worth it. And in our desperation and hurt, it's easy to start believing it. So we have to open up the scriptures and remember the promises of God. We have to go to Jesus. And when we don't want to, especially when we don't want to, we need to stay close to the church. Because when I am losing the battle, if Stephanie is winning the battle, I need to piggyback her victory. Because their victory is my victory. So we need each other in that way too. And number three thing we can remember is Jesus is going to set it all right when he returns. That's why we have the victory. He's risen, he's Lord, he's returning again, he's coming again. And all of this will finally be abolished. But in the meantime, we have to hold on. Which is why Jesus said this to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said to them, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. By the way, peace is not the absence of chaos. It's wholeness and well-being in the midst of the chaos. It's living in the tensions. You will have suffering in this world. Read it with me. Be courageous. I've overcome the world. Walk in the promises of God, beloved. Rebuke the enemy when you were in the battle. Lean into the scripture. Lean into prayer. Lean into your brothers and sisters in Christ and learn to walk the liberated life Christ has promised you. And know this, know this, know this, that Christ is with you in it. That's the one thing that we can know that we know, at least we say we believe. When we come to the table, that's the one thing we stake everything on. We say that in the bread that is the body and in the cup that is the blood, that God would not play games with our lives because God gave up his life. Why would God submit to the brutality and violence of the world? Why would God submit God's self to the injustices of the world, to the reign of sin and death and all the oppressive systems of power, to a brutal death just to turn around and play games with our life over it? That's the conviction we have to decide. That's the decision we have to each make. And each time we decide to come to the table, we are saying we've decided that God isn't going to play games with our life. The rate of sin and death is alive and well, and it's going to get all over us, but the liberation of Christ is possible. Wherever Christ is, liberation is possible, even for the least, last, left out, and lonely. 
And there is no way we're going to enter into the battles of the least, last, left out, and lonely if we are losing the battles ourselves. And so sometimes we may need to rest. And we may need to regroup and reclaim the promises of God in our life. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.